when it comes to safety, the first thing that I think every farm business should do is actually develop their own risk register. You know, it sounds bigger than what it is, but basically what it's doing is looking at your farm and looking at all the tasks um, and hazards and listing all of those of what could go wrong. Welcome to Boots Off, Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business, a show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David, and I'll be your host for the show. G'day, everybody, and welcome again to the podcast. Over the past 10 years, farms have been getting bigger and bigger, and therefore employing more people, and in some cases, employing people for the first time. Many of you are discovering that managing a farm and managing people are very different skill sets. And when you choose to grow your business beyond just you and your family, good people and good people management can mean the difference between success and failure in your business. So in the next couple of episodes, we're tackling the challenges of employing people in your farm business. Everything from recruitment, HR management, occupational health and safety, as This has become one of the biggest challenges for farm businesses of all types. Today, I'm speaking with Danielle McNamee, the founder of ProcessWorks. Danielle and her team are experts in helping farm businesses set up and manage the increasingly complex job of HR and OH&S, and have been helping farmers manage this area of their business for over 10 years. In this conversation, we talk about the things you need to get right when employing people on farm, from contracts, safety, duty of care, and how to pay people correctly. How to identify and manage the risks on your farm, and how to put systems in place to protect employees and your business. Things like the difference between contractors and employees, the importance of inductions, and the growing problem of fatigue and accidents. Danielle talks about how good HR and OHS systems are a way of attracting and retaining good staff in your business. So if you're struggling with employee management or OHS compliance on your farm, or just want to see if you're on the right track, then this conversation is for you. I trust you find it valuable. Now over to Danielle. Welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Thank you. Um before we get going, now you and I um Oh, God, we stopped. When did we get stuck on the road together? For like six months or something? Oh, oh, I reckon it was about five years ago. Five years ago. God, it seemed like yesterday, didn't it? Yeah. I had a client recently who said to me, I remember seeing you and you always told me go. And I was like, yeah. So, yeah, I reckon it was about five years ago. So, it was about STP1, I think. We, I think we, we saw 2,000 clients in six months. It was. It was huge. It was huge. It was you guys, us, and Byfields. And I honestly, that was one of the best business development things I've ever done. Like I, like I said, I still get work from that um, roadshow. Yeah, it, it was pretty epic, wasn't it? Hey, process works. Okay, before we get into drilling your brains about everything guru, HR, and OHNS, so tell us a bit more about process. So, process works. So, how did you get into this, um, what is now huge advisory to farm businesses and around HR and OHNS? So, funny story. So, I started process works 10 years ago and it was just me. And I started off with helping on processing systems and then realised that HR and safety was kind of what people wanted advice on. And anyway, so I had a client that was uh, was a grain marketing client 
And he rang me, one of my first clients, and he rang me up out of the blue and said, listen, I've got a really good client of ours. They're a farm. Um, they really need HR and safety help. And I said, gee, I'm happy to do it. It was when it was just pretty much just me and I had a contractor doing safety. And I said, look, yeah, happy to do it so long as you make it clear to them that I've never been on a farm. And that's how it started. So basically they are still, they're the um, fowlers of the well. Um, farm, they are still clients today and they have been very um, helpful through this whole journey um, of us kind of um, getting a much better understanding of agriculture. So that was that was eight years ago. So you had to teach each other. Yes, exactly. And I spent time with them on their farm and I learned a lot from them. And um, yeah, we laughed. We recently, um, <laughs> we recently drove back together from Esperance because the flight got cancelled, and we were reminiscing about all the things you know that's happened over the years. Because they were quite a small farm when I first started doing some work for them, and now obviously they're they're very big. But um, yeah, so it's been that's how the journey started. And really, farms talk, and so they were very happy with what we did. And uh, they just kind of spread the word and it went from there. Yeah. Now, in that 10 years, um, a lot's changed. Like not just um, your first, your foundation client and the Fowlers, but over the past 10 years, farms have got bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, you've seen it go throughout your clients and everything. And um, therefore, they're employing a lot more people, but there's in a lot of cases, they're employing people, you know, full-time people or a lot more people for the first time. Mm. And... Many, many farmers are discovering that managing a farm and managing people are very different skill sets. Yes. And HR and OH&S are a whole different ball game to sheep and grain and cattle. Um, so it's like this choice of they've, they've worked out that if you choose to grow your business, which many have done very successful beyond your immediate family and yourself, um, that the difference between, you know, success and value can be on how you manage your people. So what parts of the um, HR and OH&S journey do, do you find when you get a client for the first time, they uh, really struggle to get to grips with the most? I think, look, it's been interesting. And there's been a, you know, over that time, there's been huge changes in the legislation as well. So we saw, we've seen a whole, you know, rewrite of the safety legislation last year, which, which has been huge. Um, and also a lot of changes in the Fair Work Act. I think one of the things that farmers find hard to get their head around is that they're used to employing family and that is a completely different relationship. So the whole concept of, you know, having formality in the arrangement as in, you know, that you do need an employment contract and you can't just chuck in a couple of sheep and, you know, um, free accommodation and that will make it up. So that's probably one of the biggest areas from a HR perspective um, I think farmers really struggle with. From a safety perspective, um, I think, you know, and this has really become much more apparent recently over the last 12 months with the change in legislation, I think it's just the reality that, you know, they are responsible for the life of those people who work on that farm and that, you know, a she'll be right attitude is just not going to cut it anymore. And so what I find, it's it's about kind of educating, explaining um, why we need to have all these systems and processes in place and why that's important, um, you know, to keep people safe, but also so that the farm business is protected. Because, you know, now, you know, with the, with the change in, in both safety and HR laws, there's, you know, huge fines and, you know, potential jail time if things go wrong. 
Yeah. So we were talking before about these these category one. So there's been a lot of press around the really nasty stuff, right? So you know the um, industrial manslaughter. Those those are the things that get the story. But there's some. I, I love what you talked about in the context. Is yes, we're protecting the people who work for us, but we're also more. Uh, uh, we're also protecting the farm business at the same time, right? And this. Um, and this category one or this duty of care, can you explain that and why people really need to be aware of it? Yeah, so I think whenever whenever I get asked to speak or talk to a farmer or speak for a group, a grow group, people always say, Danielle, can you talk about the new industrial manslaughter laws? And I always say in response, the industrial manslaughter laws don't overly concern me uh, because in my experience and having to talk to you know hundreds of farmers, I very rarely see a farmer, well, I don't think I've ever seen a farmer, who is going out of their way to really put their staff at risk. And, you know, industrial manslaughter requires that you, you know, real negligence, okay? And it's, it's a different area of the legislation. It's uh, prosecuted by a different body. Um, and so, you know, it, I don't see it in many respects as a serious concern. But what I do worry about is Category 1 because under Category 1, if you fail to meet your duty of care and that failure causes the death of someone, then you can still go to jail um, for up to five years and there's still huge fines. And so the way I like to explain that is that, you know, part of your duty of care under the Act, and it's very clear in black and white, is to provide, um, you know, supervision, instruction and training. Now, a lot of farms will be providing that supervision, instruction and training in that they're practically doing it. No, you know, no farmer's going to stick some new backpacker on a big new um, piece of equipment if they think they're going to crash it. But what I find is that they do not document it. So there's a lot of things they're doing. So if you um, basically have a serious accident with someone dies or there's a serious injury and you've got no um, evidence to show that you provided that supervision, instruction, training, then it can be argued you know, that they have not met their duty of care and therefore that's where the concern arises around at Category 1. So that's really what I, you know, really worry about. And so what I'm always trying to say to farmers is that, look, we need to put systems and processes and practices in place that keep your people safe but also protect your business. And whilst you are doing a lot of things that are safe, because you have not documented it, um, it's not protecting the business. It's still protecting the people but it's not protecting the business. Um, and yeah, so that, that's why I focus on category one rather than the industrial manslaughter. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, you've got a bunch of farmers listening to this and previous talks, and this is the point where they all go white and go, oh my God, I'm now I'm scared. Right. Um, and, you know, so, you know, practically, so uh, we've got a farm business listening to this and they go, oh, Danielle, that's just put the wind up me so and I don't know if I am doing any of this properly and I'm not very good with people and where do they start Daniel like so know. I oh yeah look I like to break it down so when it comes to safety um the first thing that I think um every farm business should do is actually develop their own risk register which doesn't it, you know it sounds bigger than what it is but basically what it's doing is looking at your farm and looking at all the tasks um, and hazards and listing all of those of what could go wrong. So, for example, you know, animal handling, you know, handling grains, hazardous chemicals. So actually getting a list together. The second step is then to go, well, what, what could be the injury or, or 
potential death as a result of that. So, for example, um, if we look at silos, I always think that's a good example. So silos, um, so um, it's, you know, working from heights risk, what could happen? Um, well, the worst case happens is someone can actually fall off the silo um, and if they're not got any harnesses or anything, they could die or they could be suffocated through a confined space injury. So it's then looking at what rating that risk um, and then it's looking at, okay, so how can we how can we manage that risk? And the reason why risk registers to start with is that it gives farmers an opportunity to actually get down on paper all the things that they are currently doing to manage the risk. So you will find that a lot of farmers, when they write all their hazards um, and then they, you know, put the type of injury or death and then they can rate the risk, then they are actually doing a lot of sensible things, but they just haven't put it in any kind of system. So I like to get them then to put all the things that they're doing down. So, for example, if they are doing a face-to-face induction with their new staff and they're checking the competency of a new staff before they put them in a dangerous position uh, on a on a big machine or driving a big machine, whatever, um, then you would put that in the risk register, okay? Now, once they put everything down that they're doing, then that's a great opportunity to then consult with their team, so show the team, whether it be one full-time or a couple of casuals, and say, hey, this is what we're doing. What else can we do? And so, and then you work from there and put some systems in places. Now, that is just a really simple way to start. It takes a little bit of time. I like to say, you know, you could probably do it over a week, just, you know, an hour here, an hour there. But you've then got a foundation document where you're meeting your obligations under the Act in that you've you've identified your hazards, you've um, rated your risk, and you've outlined the control measures you've put in place. And you've also identified additional control measures that you um, will put in place. And everything in safety is about being reasonably practicable. So, for example, with the silos, ideally it's better to have bottom opening silos, but that may not be possible six months down the track due to budgets, but you can still have that in your risk register as something you're working towards. And in the meantime, you're going to use your harnesses. So that's the first place to start. The second thing is, like I said, most farmers do induct their staff, they do train their staff, just draw up in a very simple word document just the list of things that they discuss with their staff and that they train their staff. Just doesn't have to be fancy, just in a simple table and then use that, get the staff member to sign off as they're doing and get the farmer to sign off as they're doing. That's another really good place to start. So if you do your risk register and you cover your induction, your training, it's a good place to start. Now, there's obviously a lot more that you can do, but they're the two things that I always recommend. Anyone who's wanting to start to um, do go through the whole system themselves, that's, that is a um, really easy place to be and will really help you. I remember when I was farming, I had a... Um, a, I don't know what you call it. I had a, a very poor appreciation of the amount of risk that I or anyone else on the farm was taking, you know. So my risk register was pretty crude. 
Um, so do do we need to walk? Do we need to walk around the farm? As, but if my, especially when my my children were younger, I walk around and everything was a risk. Um, so so is it like is it like how do you tune your brain to go? Okay, I wouldn't let my kids do that, or this is what I wouldn't. Do you know what I mean? Like how do you? So I think I see two things happen. Right, I either get farmers who are not good at identifying the risks, or I get the other extreme, and they identify everything and it's over the top. So you're looking, you're looking at, um, you know, your risk registers really, I don't think should be more than about 10 kind of um, A4 pages, right? So that's still relatively long. Um, I've seen a lot longer. Um, but basically, I think you should just look at those those key risks. And when we work with farmers, we help them. Obviously, we're used to looking at risk registers all the time and we help them and provide some prompts and everything, you know, if they forget and do, because it's really important that they come up with themselves, but we do help, you know, with some workshops to to get to the bottom of it. But, um, you know, even if you just start and go, well, what could kill someone? Yeah. And just start there. So you start at the big stuff, really big stuff. Start at the big stuff. And don't get like, so don't get bogged down in minute detail. Like, there's certain things you do have to do under the Act, but just to start with, um, just start with like, yeah, you're working from heights, you can find space, you're working with animals, your mobile machinery, you know, those those kind of key big ones, chemicals. Yeah. Is livestock another one? So yes. t- paying attention to livestock because we think machinery and we think thing, you know, big, heavy bits. Livestock's huge. Yeah. So handling livestock. I remember as a, when I was a farmer, I, I dislocated my knee a couple of times, which were not even with cattle, with sheep. So it's it's is it being aware that even livestock can be dangerous to uh, to people? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, livestock. We we had a um, we were doing some presentations, training presentations across Australia. Um last week um, via video conference for Rural Ridge and, you know, um, one of the participants, I won't name the state, but, um, you know, had had a death due to a livestock two days before. Oh, wow. So, you know, so pigs, sheep, cattle. I mean, obviously cattle is your biggest risk and we do quite a lot of work with cattle stations and that is a real, obviously a real high risk um, there. But, no, absolutely um, all those areas. And it's just lifting sheep on the back of utes and stuff fall into that category. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Now, when it comes to um, the employment side of things, you know, like there's obviously a lot of legislation. Um, I think, it, re- you know, like when we were doing our, our workshops, you know, our roadshow series uh, five years ago, I think, um, you know, STP had just come in. Now we've got STP too and then we've got a lot of changes in contracts. What are the big things in, you know, what are those fundamentals of HR that you see people – getting wrong all the time, but they just, okay, yeah. Yeah, so the biggest is, look, the biggest for me, um, okay, so in Western Australia it's a challenging um, because we have two systems, okay? So we have a national um, industrial relations system which is for all proprietary limited farms and we have a state industrial relations system which is if you're in like a partnership with no proprietary limited. So most of, we find most farms now sitting more in that national. So I would be a rich lady if I had a dollar for every farmer that said to me, hey, Danielle, I don't pay the award. I pay above the award a flat rate and, um, you know, I don't need any contracts and I don't need anything. She'll be right. So what I would say as a as a minimum, and if you do really need employment contracts um, and individual flexibility agreements 
if you're going to pay a flat rate. So most farms, very few farmers follow the pattern of the reward. They'll pay a, a nice, a higher flat rate. Um, and, and they believe that with that flat rate and with, you know, the um, accommodation they throw in and sometimes there's the meat in there too and sometimes there's a car in there, they believe um, that they are paying the correct rate. And whilst morally that might be the case, from a legislation perspective, we can't count any of those add-ons to meet the better off overall test. So basically, if they're going to pay a flat rate, you need to have an employment contract and you need to have an individual flexibility agreement, which is a deed, like a deed to contract outside of the award. And you need to have done the better off overall test, which basically says if that employee was on the base rate in um, the pastoral award, they still would be getting better off by being paid the flat rate. But what most farmers really struggle with, and I can understand why, um, it, it doesn't seem fair, but we can't include the value of that accommodation. We can't have you know, include the value of that car necessarily um, if it's a farm use. Uh, we can't include the value of that meat. So that's the first thing everyone needs to have. If you sit in the state system, then you can get away with just having an employment contract. You don't need an individual flexibility agreement. So they're the first things. The second thing is is that there's been a lots of changes in legislation recently, um, and one of the biggest areas is around um, discrimination. Um, and harassment. And whilst I used to feel comfortable that for a HR, you could probably get away with just having an employment contract, IFA and a boot, now you have to, in my opinion, have key policies and procedures. Um, and that's around your discrimination, harassment and bullying policy and procedures. Mm -hmm. um, you just need to that. You need to be proactively demonstrating that you're promoting um, anti-discrimination practices now with both e-learning e training and face-to-face um, -face training. You need to have a grievance procedure now in terms of um, incident investigation. We've also um, got new laws all around domestic violence um, and flexible working arrangements. So there's a whole lot of um, procedures that you need to make sure you're meeting those requirements. So it has um, certainly in the last you know three months become, well, since the Labor government um, came in, a lot more um, complicated, I suppose, in terms of what every business needs in terms of HR. Yeah, and I think this is not just this is not targeted at agriculture in any way. This is all of our businesses are being faced with the same Yeah, it doesn't matter what business you're in. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just you know, so staying aware of these changes, because I know in our business, uh, you and we have someone who stays up to date and makes sure that, you know, we send our contracts off to get reviewed to make sure where our policies and procedures are in place. So so how do you recommend to people to make sure that, you know, like these changes that come through in the last three months that they are complying with the legislation? I mean, obviously, you know, I'm going to say if you become a process works client, we take care of all of that for you. But if you're <laughs> yeah. wanting to do it yourself... Um, then I would register um, if you're a national if you fall into the national system. I would register with Fair Work um, Commission mm -hmm. um, and the Fair Work Ombudsman. You can register to those sites um, online on those sites. They're two different sites. Um, and if you're uh, and for safety, um, I would register with um, WorkSafe. Yeah, and then there should be alerts coming coming through. I mean, the big challenge I find with the alerts is that they're not necessarily written in a way that is easily understood. Mm -hmm. And it's it's always and it's a challenge that you've got to then put those alerts in some kind of, you know, document 
to communicate to your staff. So one of the other key changes that are coming up, which I don't think is going to be hugely impact agriculture, but is the new flexibility provisions, which basically mean that, you know, if you come um, under one of the um, criteria, so you over 55 or, you know, got small children or a carer or um, disability or um, dealing with domestic violence, that you can ask for flexible work, which can mean, you know, working from home all the time. Um, and unlike previously where we as business owners could just turn around and say, no, it doesn't suit the business, that's all challenging. And so we've got a situation where the fair work can now come in and arbitrate in your business on both flexibility provisions and also sexual discrimination. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's about, you know, I know everyone's busy and everyone goes, God, I haven't got time for this, but it's not. So what you're saying is, yes, I know you're busy. Yes, I know you you know, you're busy running a farm, but this isn't something that you can't ignore. This is something that's real. Um, and you somehow have to carve out, I know, time in your in your busy schedule to make sure that you've either, you know, you know, engaged a business like you to help with it, or if you're not going to engage a business like you to um, carve time out to, to, to make sure that you're complying and going through the right processes. Yeah, and I think, you know, regardless of whether you have someone like us help or like there's, you know, other lots of other businesses that provide services as well or whether you decide to do it yourself, I think what's really important, you just have to have one person in the farm who is responsible for HR and safety mm -hmm. or you have one person responsible for HR or one person responsible for safety or one person responsible for both. What I find is that if you don't have one person responsible, it just gets left behind. Yeah. And nothing ever really happens. Um, and I also do believe that with the right, you know, time and effort, you you know, you can save yourself money and you can do it yourself. It is possible to do it yourself. There are certainly, you know, lots of resources out there. So it's not like it's not um, possible. Well, like all the other compliance work you have to do and all the um, other office stuff, you know, some people know they're really good at this and some people know that they aren't. And I think that's an, indivi that's an individual thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. And and I think, um, you know, some people are generally really, you know, interested in it. But, I, I mean, I, I think what's hard is just that we have seen, you know, certainly in the 10 years that I've been running process works, just a huge increase in compliance across both HR and safety. And I think it's very difficult um, for, and when I say small business, I'm, I'm, I talk about, you know, small farms. I'm not talking about how much they produce or how big they are geographically. I'm talking about that most, you know, most of the farmers that I work with, you know, they have less than 10 staff. They have less than five staff. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, they still have to be across all of this and be responsible for it. And, and it's, it, I think it's really challenging. Um, for the farm owner. And right now across Australia and across the world actually, you know, labour um, is very hard to get. Um, and so people are having to um, seek, you know, really different um, labour. So some labour is very young, some labour is much older than they'd normally employ. You've got a lot of different languages and backgrounds and things. So is there are a lot of things that, or some things that farmers need to be aware of when either for example, um, putting their children on a header or putting a much older person on a tractor, is there things that they need to be aware of around these sorts of things? I think whenever you bring someone on, whether it be a family member or, you know, someone else, you know, just a, a independent person, I think it's just being really aware of some of the limitations. Now, what we've seen um, in the last 12 months is a huge um, 
um, death rate for farmers and a lot of them are older farmers and I think a lot of that's to do with older farmers having to get back to do the stuff they haven't done for some time and accidents um, occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I and I also see situations where you've got younger, you know, you do have children as well. I think it's about that comes back to that whole risk approach. And and this is what the, um, the legislation is always talking about. Like assess the risk. You know, don't treat everybody the same. Look at someone and mm-hmm. look up their capabilities and make an assessment and then, you know, assess the risk accordingly and then make changes accordingly. Um, you just can't assume, you know, a, a backpacker, you know, is very different to an older farmer, to a to a younger, you know, uni student, and you have to look at them each individually. And, and you know, when I talk about that importance of induction and training and having those records, it's it's also not just paying lip service to that, but actually looking at what they what they need, you know, and and being aware of that. Mm-hmm. And it's also sometimes you have to say no. Sometimes it's just not right for a certain person to do a certain job, and that can be very challenging when you're seeding or in harvest. But it's not nearly as challenging as dealing with a death. Yeah, and now that brings up fatigue. So um, fatigue, and I think a lot of it we, especially when you're working as a farm, it's just um, something that you, I don't know, you, you know, you just sort of suck it up. I suppose is a bad way of looking at it, but. Fatigue is a real OHS issue, isn't it? Huge, huge. Because the thing is, is if you look at the heavy vehicle accreditation, which is all very regulated, you know, they they have got very strict rules around how long the shifts are and when you have to have a day off and everything else. And there's nothing, you know, in there's nothing in black and white about how long a shift should be. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the question we always get. Well, how long? How long can we stretch someone for? I mean, it's to do with a whole lot of things in terms of you know breaks. You know, what have they eaten? You know, what have they trained it and everything else? Um, but the reality is if you're doing, you know, and, and farmers always roll their eyes at me when I say this, but I mean if you're if you're doing twelve plus um hour shifts, mm-hmm. um, you you you're in you're in danger if you if you have a, you know, injury or accident. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I'm well aware that, you know, shifts can go for a lot longer than that, but but you are putting that person and the business at risk when you you know when you do that and you, you need to make sure you know you have some really good practices around to support fatigue management like including breaks and food and and when I say breaks I don't mean just you know sitting on your phone in the tractor you know, with the door shut still you know you've got to get out you know and have fresh air and you know of all the things that we talk about to farmers the fatigue I think is the one that we probably struggle the most with because you know who are we we don't understand how critical it is when you're doing seeding in harvest to get that work done. I'm, I'm not a farmer, I pretend to understand. Um, and sometimes, you know, that it just has to happen, but it is an area that does worry me in agriculture. Yeah, and does this extend? So it's very common for someone to do like a very big shift, whether that be livestock or especially machinery, and then but they're on the um, you know the second block that's twenty kilometres down the road, and then they're driving home after that shift. Is that also part of the duty of care of of farmers when someone's finished their shift and they have to go home? Absolutely. So it's not not. So if they had an accident, it wouldn't be primary, wouldn't be all the farmers' responsibility. It would be, you know, I'm 
balance, obviously, because they're strictly speaking, they've left work. But if you've allowed someone to leave work after, say, a 20 hour shift mm-hmm. and they're now doing a 40, 40 minute drive, then I mean, I, you know, I can't say for sure, but I, it would surprise me if there wasn't some challenges around that if there was an accident. Mm. It's not going to be, you know, entirely the farmer's um, fault, but there is certainly going to be um, some factors. It would be considered as a factor. Um, you've worked, you've worked, you've got some um, really amazing clients with some great workplaces that have got good staff. So do you find that really good, the, these sound very administrative, we to OH&S, employment contracts, inductions. You know, a lot of people are sitting there listening to this going, oh, my God, I can't be bothered doing that. But can it be a way of retaining, well, not just attracting, but retaining really good people? Absolutely. Look, I just think, I feel so strongly now that, you know, for you to, um, it's so competitive to get people, right? Mm-hmm. So staff are getting picky and cheesy and not necessarily um, wanting to put themselves uh, in a situation where there is no safety management system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really, I mean, most staff are becoming very aware of it. I also think, and it can sound very boring and black and white and everything else, but I passionately believe that by putting these processes and systems and actually practically putting them in place and communicating them with your team, you have a, a huge impact on your culture. So, for example, with the risk assessment, you know, actually going to your team and saying, listen, you know, we really care about your safety. We've kind of worked out this is what could go wrong. This is what we're currently doing. We really take your, you know, your would like your opinion on what you think. You know, people value being consulted, you know, feeling, you know, worthy. So um, I think it can make a huge difference um, in retention. Um, I, I, I think it's, you know, absolutely key. It's proven statistically that, you know, if you train and induct someone, that you, your chances of holding them are far greater than if you don't. Um, and also part of, you know, I think through all of these um, processes is that you're learning to be a better manager. And, you know, it is, it is again, another statistical fact that the main reason people leave um, is because of a bad manager. You know, people, yeah. people will leave because of a bad manager. So I think that even though there is, um, there is a certain amount of boring stuff around it, it can sound boring, it can really impact your culture and having a happy team. And the best way to keep people is for people to be happy and to feel safe. Yeah, I was talking to a recruiting manager from um, from uh, Victoria a couple of weeks ago and he was saying that, first of all, people, the young people are talking about which farms are good to work for and which ones aren't. And around everything from conditions to pay to OH&S, um, but he also said he has stopped recruiting for people that don't have good systems in place. So it was a really interesting insight into how, you know, how to attract good people. You need, need there's, that, it's almost like um, table stakes now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, did, I just think, um, you know, I know people get frustrated by safety and I hear all the arguments on, on a regular basis, but if you can have a like practical system that you put in place, um, it'll really contribute to safety. And, you know, I've been in an unfortunate situation of, of, you know, being involved in, you know, people that have had deaths and mm-hmm. it, it's the most horrendous thing to go through. And I and I just I just think that, you know, whether someone, you know, does it themselves or gets some help, it's just part of doing good business now to have a safety system. Definitely. It, it just it's just key. Hey Danny, we can't 
not do this podcast without covering off the, the old chestnut. Employees versus contractors. I know this has been going on for a decade. Oh, gosh, yeah. And we're, we're just going to have to touch on this one, right? Oh, okay. So, and, and for those of you, if you, Danielle um, would be rolling her eyes at this point because it's the most common objection. Um, so can we just um, try and put a pin in the difference between an employee and a contractor as far, when you are a farm manager? Okay. So the, the, the lovely thing about it is that there's two answers, whether we're talking HR or talking safety. So I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk HR first. So if, as a general rule, if someone is working like an employee, so they're working for you on not short contracts, but they're working for like, they might be working for a year, they're using your machinery, um, they're taking um, direction from you, but you know what? They they used to have a farm and they don't want to be employees, so they've got an ABN, and so you think they're a contractor. Well, in that situation, it's highly likely that um, they, if challenged, would be seen as an employee rather than a contractor. Now, there's some recent just a uh, recent case law that came out um, that basically said, with respect to contractors, again, this is in HR, that um, one of the ways you can safeguard protect yourself is have a very um, robust uh, contractor agreement between the contractor and the company. So it's still grey in HR, um, but there are, there are some ways around it. Um, in safety, there there it's interesting because we don't use the term contractor or employee. We use the term worker in the legislation, and both an employee and a contractor are deemed worker. So whilst they are um, the contractor is a worker and they're not an employee. You have a duty of care to them in many respects, like you do if they are employing you. So, for example, with contractors now, we need to make sure that we are inducting contractors, and that would be like a, a you know, a checklist induction, but also a face-to-face induction. So, we need to make sure um, that they, you know, can do the skills and, and have a safe management system. So, as a general rule, if someone feels like an employee, then normally they are. But if you want to protect yourself, then one of the ways that you can differentiate them for being a contractor is to have a really good contractor agreement between um, that person and yourself for them to bring on their own machines and for them to direct their works and they would be a contractor. Does that mean, for example, I I just want to put it into a bit of concrete example. I've been using a shearing team year in, year out, and I bring them into my shed and, you know, the personnel changes a little bit year to year. So it's it's what you're saying is it's important for me to go through that baseline induction every year for the team, make sure they're aware of, you know, the the environment they're going to be working in. And my second part to that question, are they also responsible to make sure they point out to you hazards that they've become aware of while going through, say, their shearing? Absolutely. Just as the employees. So an empl- a worker under the Act has a duty of care to themselves and to others, and that includes being, you know, reporting hazards if they see them. So absolutely. And with your sharing teams, I mean, it is important um, that you have that contractor induction and it can be, you know, look, it can be hard at times to, to get that done. Um, but the shearer contractor also has a responsibility and duty of care to those shearer, uh, shearers that they bring in as well. So it's a shared, it's a shared duty of care between the farmer and that contract, um, that shearer contractor manager. Yeah. Um, one last thing um, just on HR. Um, 
payroll is probably the pet hate of nearly every um, farm business we talk to. Um, well, some people like it, but and a lot of people are trying to find a thousand different ways not to do it. <laughs> um, but paying people correctly and accruing their leave and, you know, all those, because um, there's lots of different types of leave, et cetera, is it, you know, if they're an employee, is it really straightforward there's really only one way to do it or is it, do people actually have flexibility? Because in the agriculture, So in agriculture, um, if they form within the classifications of the awards, so whether it be the pastoral award or the Farm Employees Award, if you're under the state system, mm-hmm. then you have to pay either according to the award or according to the highest salary or flat rate, if you've got the right paperwork behind it, like an individual flexibility agreement, um, you have to pay all the leave. You know, you can't you, you can't contract out of that. So you, you have to have an employment contract, and that employment contract needs to say what the remuneration would be. Um, and part of the remuneration is then um, what's in the award and then also the national employment standards for the national system or the minimum conditions of employment for the state system. And there is no way of avoiding that. It it has to be paid. And, you know, the Fairwick Ombudsman has become, I will say ferocious, but very um, certainly has taken a keen interest of late in agriculture um, where businesses are not doing it correctly. And they will go through, you know, your payroll and you'll, you know, find accordingly. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, standard payroll, accruing all your leaves, your long service leaves, your holiday leave, your sick leave, all those normal legislated award um, things and making sure they're accrued and recorded correctly. Absolutely. And it's really important that you have your time and wages record. So, you know, People should have timesheets. I always see the the downside of things. You know, I've had a couple of situations where I've had farmers who, you know, trusted the employee. The employer was paid a flat rate that was high. Uh, They didn't have a contract or an IFA. They didn't keep timesheets. And then they said they were underpaid, which whilst morally they were not underpaid, um, they were under the Fair Work Act and the award. And so, therefore, they've had, they've had to under you know back pay and, and get fines. So, look, you have to look as a minimum. You have to have an empl- have an employment contract, have an IFA if you're paying a flat rate. Um, make sure that you're happy that that rates um, meets the better off overall test, all right? And then make sure you have timesheets and wages records and do your pay slips. There's just no way of avoiding um, that side of things. Definitely. So last uh, last couple of things on you, Danny, is um, I always ask people about myths. Normally it's myths in agriculture, but you it's HR. So I want to know, what do you think there's a commonly peddled myth about OH&S or HR that you'd like to say, okay, guys, it doesn't exist? Well, the biggest myth I get in HR is just that I, the award doesn't apply to me because I pay greater than the award. Mm-hmm. So that would be the biggest myth I get all the time in HR. Um, and in safety, I think the biggest myth I get is that, I know I'll swear, but, um, that it's all rubbish. Yep. It's all just for the government. Um, I truly believe that if you have a practical system, um, that's right for your business, it will save lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, and statistically, it, you know, it's proven. So it's not just, you know, ticking boxes. And so I think there's often a myth that, you know, I'm safe already and, you know, I don't, but. 
I just think no. I think it does make a real difference. If it didn't, I wouldn't do it. And the statistics prove otherwise, don't they, Danny? Like farming. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we had the sort of deaths in mining like we have in agriculture, it'd be a whole. You'd be. Yeah, there'd be a whole lot of um, uproar, wouldn't there? Yeah, there would be. You know, there would be. The other thing, just Dave, just just for you to be aware of, um, will be interesting to see um, that this inquiry into agriculture safety that has been done um, by Pam Scott will be coming out. I've look, I don't know, probably in the next month or two, um, and that will be very interesting to see what initiatives uh, that they come out with and apply to. Agriculture. So when will we find out about that, do you think? How long do you think that? Well, I, I reckon, well, I thought it was going to be in a couple of weeks, but then I got told by someone in the know that it's going to be at least two months. Yeah. But the honest answer is I don't know. Um, but it's, you know, I'm certainly very interested to see, um, really hoping that some really positive practical things, um, I think, in terms of supporting the industry with more training um, would be really, really beneficial, and that's certainly what we advocated. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is a really good point. We we talked right at the beginning of this podcast about the fact that all of these things that you've been talking about are, are, are very important skills and important to do, but it is so different. To, if you've been a farmer your whole life and you've got a great skill in that, this is a whole different skill, a new muscle that you have to develop. Um, and so it, it's important that you need to seek out training and help and learn about this because and you shouldn't just know it. It's different. It is different, and the thing, and where I think agriculture is different than other businesses, because we've worked obviously in other businesses and industries as well. But in agriculture, it is largely done on the land, and mm-hmm. some farmers are lucky; they might have a, a partner, whether it be a, a female partner or a, or a brother, or they might have someone that works in the office. But a lot of farmers don't, and it it's really hard because farms are now having to go. To they need to have little administration centres to cover these things. So it mm-hmm. is a challenge and I think there needs to be, I think there does need to be more coaching and support and education um, so that they do know what to do. Yep. Yeah, definitely. So, um, Danny, when you're not helping farmers with their HR and contracts and oh um, what do you like to do? How do you like to spend your time outside advising people around all these uh, things? Run my business. Run your business. Run my business. No, uh, run my business. No, um, I love, okay, my favourite things are, well, I have three children uh, that I very much enjoy spending time with and I've got a dog that I love. And um, between the children and the dog <laughs> and the business and the husband, that about keeps me pretty busy. Where do you get sleep in? Not a lot. Number one. <laughs> all right, D- Danny. If people want to know all about process works or um, do anything, so how do they get hold of you? Especially in, uh, for the people in Western Australia, your West Australian based businesses. But um, we do do we do do farms across Australia though. So um, just just Google process works and. Um, and there's, yeah, we'll just give the office a call and ask to speak to me. Yeah. And now I'll get Danny, you'll send some links through and I'll put them all on the show notes of the podcast. Um, and that's Process Works with an X too, isn't it, Danny? Yes, it's with an X, yes. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we'll put in the show notes any links to uh, Danielle and her business um, and a few of the other things that um, Danielle has mentioned throughout the, the podcast. And, um, 
thank you very much, Danielle, for um, helping us out and um, giving your sage advice to all our listeners. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to Boots Off Log On. Our aim with this podcast is to give you access to the best minds in agricultural business and to help your farm business thrive. So if you have any feedback or suggestions for the podcast, including people you believe I should interview, please email bootsofflogon at agrimaster.com.au. If you like this episode, please take time to share it on social media or even better, directly with at least one friend today. And take the time to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it really helps us reach more farm businesses like you. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster farm business management software and services, you can find us at agrimaster.com.au. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.